Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to episode 35 of the Josh Scanlon podcast. Here it is Thursday, May 10th. And today we're going to talk about an exciting discussion I had with Sean Mills last night. Uh, Sean does a, uh, he has a consulting business called Hack Your Solar, where he can give you advice on how to be energy independent. And uh, Sean lives with his wife and two daughters in uh, Middle Tennessee on a 100% off-grid house. And not a trailer, not a vacation home, a real live operating house, two stories, 1,600 square foot. And he has no electricity bill whatsoever, no heating bill whatsoever. He does have some propane and some kerosene. But other than that, he's 100% off-grid. It's just interesting to, uh, to discuss this with Sean because uh, what he's found – uh, since the uh, Great Recession of 2008 and nine, he says, there's got to be a better way. And he just took it upon himself to get nerd out what he said about alternative energies, how he described it. And I find it actually fascinating. Sean and I came to know each other through the survival podcast, uh, just the survivalpodcast.com. A guy named Jack Spirico uh, does uh, five episodes a week on various uh, self-sufficiency techniques. And, uh, and I find it fascinating uh, just a different levels of, of uh, sufficiency or self-sufficiency. And as a financial planner, being self-sufficient is incredibly important because I'm telling you, the thing that weighs you down the most from financial planning is debt and the shackles that it comes with working in corporate America. And so if you can say to yourself, you know, screw that, I don't want to do that anymore. I'm going to go work for myself. You're just going to be happier as long as you're doing the things that you can enjoy. And obviously you got to make an income too. Uh, but one of the things you can do is if you're still kind of planning for the day you leave corporate America is look at your cash flow and mortgage by far your housing expense without question tops your cash flow. No other way around that. And the big culprit of that is frankly your mortgage. Uh, but another big thing is your utilities, your electricity bills, your natural gas, your oil, whatever it is that you have. And so if you can find a way to minimize that, reduce it, if not right, outright, get out of uh, having that kind of bill, that's another wonderful way to be self-sufficient. Now, I'm not a greenie at all. I mean, I'm a conservationist, as most conservatives are. Most people in the National Rifle Association, for instance, we, if you just look at an NRA uh, hunt, for instance, you'll see we pick up stuff. We don't leave litter. We don't... Uh, uh, we don't abuse the land by any stretch of the imagination, unlike these uh, supposedly environmentalists who protest uh, in D.C. to save the earth. And if you see, and then, then what was that? The uh, North Dakota pipeline, man, just left an absolute disgusting mess of trash and litter. Uh, those of us on the right-hand side of things or the libertarian side, we're, we actually res do respect the environment. Um, I actually challenge some degree a lot with a PV. PV is photovoltaic. And Sean actually is not afraid to admit where the inefficiencies lay in photovoltaic. Uh, and that's just turning the sun's wattage that we get from the, the, the great heat tab in the, in the sky, turning that to electricity. All right, that's photovoltaic. I'm a big fan of that um, to some degree. But remember, a lot going on with photovoltaic is just not efficient. It will never be that efficient. And you still need battery power. Power. The nice thing, though, is once the battery storage capacity comes and Sean is a lot more optimistic than I am. He thinks the next three to five years we're going to have a lot more efficiencies on battery storage. I, <laughs> I don't know, man. I hope so, but I don't see it happening. But once we have battery storage 
much, much better than we have today with lead asset batteries, acid batteries with lithium ion and whatnot. Um, that will be a game changer. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because then we can even the inefficiencies of solar photovoltaic panels. Again, they're inefficient. No other way around that. But once we are able to even use those inefficiencies to store power in a battery system that can be quickly turned off and on with a flick of a switch to provide power as needed, it's just going to be a game changer. And right now, lead acid, ba lead acid batteries just aren't that. The, the technology is just it's incredibly, incredibly old. It's dated. It works okay, but it's not going to work enough to power your home. Uh, with any significant uh, just off grid, I mean, just you're not gonna. We use 50 kilowatt hours a, a day in my house, and I'm gonna need a huge solar array to provide those 50 kilowatt hours a day. It's just, it's, I don't have the space for it, I don't have the battery capacity for it, I don't have the money for it, frankly. Most people do not. But then you talk about, but the interesting thing with Sean is he has two daughters, 11, 13. And if you know anything about young ladies, they use a lot of uh, electricity, you know, hair dryers, showering. Uh, seems like the showers are what it takes like 12 hour showers, washing lots of laundry, lots of usage and electricity in there. And Sean's is just him and his wife and two daughters. And yet Sean is still able to use his PV panels for electricity, his propane, his kerosene for heating and whatnot. Um, he did say the one drawback every now and again in the summertime, it does get hot because he has a couple of uh, units for air conditioned window units. Sean uses 23 gallons of liquid propane a quarter. So that's less than 100 gallons a year that he uses. Pretty amazing. But... <laughs> That's not a bad trade-off for $300 a month or more for your electric bill. You use your outdoor grill. That's five gallons. Sean uses five, the equivalent of five of those things uh, to power his home. That's it. Five. I use it outside. And so what I love about Sean is he's not just attached to PV. And I think, again, PV is photovoltaic. Just let me re reiterate what that means. Using the sun's electricity and turning, oh, sun's wattage and turning to electricity. That's what PV stands for. But there's lots of other alternative energy things out there. We talked about geothermal, and I'm a huge fan of geothermal. Uh, solar thermal. I, I think, again, I've talked about this a million times on Sunday. In terms of efficiency, solar thermal is absolutely, hands down, better than solar uh, photovoltaic. Uh, geothermal is wonderful. Uh, Sean's a little bit more keen on wind. I think wind's probably, again, you're going to have to have some serious battery uh, capacity there for wind to really make headway. I, I don't buy it at all. Um, not for wind power. Wind power is I'm not quite going to say fraudulent, but until we get better battery storage for the storing the energy, the electricity that that wind provides, it's, I, wind is just silly. Um, but, you know, if Sean is right, and say five years out, I'll even say 10 years out, that we have a much, much more efficient way to store uh, energy in batteries, electricity and batteries. Uh, I tell you, you know, even an inefficient you know, wind generator, even an inefficient PV panel, the facts are while you're sitting at, you know, at your office and your solar PV panels and your wind is generating electricity that you can now put to put in your batteries. Yeah, you might not be as efficient as being able to uh, coal power your um, your electrical when you get home, but then we talk about peak demand and the the inefficiencies that are there. It's just an interesting. I, I just find it very interesting. 
And I, and I wish the environmentalists would not have taken over. It's kind of like they took over the term liberal. They took over the term anarchist. It's just like, man, the liberals, in, you know, what we know to be the progressive left wing part of the Democratic Party. They've just taken over all the good words because being an environmentalist is a good thing. Being an anarchist is a good thing. Being a liberal is a good thing in a true sense of what these words are. But I don't want anything to do with that if it means being a communist is essentially what's going on in the environmental movement. And it's just sad. We're, they're watermelons, essentially. That's green on the outside and red on the end. It's just sad because uh, they really are ruining what being pro environment does not mean have to be put pick political sides. I'm more about independence and the idea of being able to generate your own uh, energy, your own electricity. And like we, Sean and I were talking about, be able to trade it with your neighbors, a community. I, that's, I mean, I'm telling you, we've gotten away from the community spirit of days of past. And I just think I'm so excited for these things um, to be able to be more communal, not in a hippie sense of a commune, but communal. Like you get to know your neighbors, they get to know you, you look out for each other as opposed to relying on big government, a big labor, big business, as opposed to relying on an unforeseen uh, corporate corporate entity that provides you everything. That's not good for society. And the more we can get back to a day of helping each other out, uh, just the better off we're going to be. And if that means the, uh, the being environmentalist, not in the name that you currently conjure up with these these communists, but if that means you can be an environmentalist and say, hey, energy independence is good for everything that's out there good for society, good for the environment, good for the community, good for your financial planning and, and self-sufficiency. Man, sign me up. Absolutely. So I hope you enjoy this episode. I love it. I think Sean's great. Uh, go to his website. Uh, and again, let me just make sure I'm giving you the right. Uh, it's uh, hackmysolar.com, hackmysolar.com. Uh, just a brief, uh, let's see. Uh, in 2012, Sean purchased an off-grid home and he designed and installed his own grid, off-grid solar photovoltaic system. His wife and two daughters have lived off-grid since 2012 in Middle Tennessee, where they utilize solar PV, solar thermal, rainwater catchment, and other appropriate technologies to live a more self-sufficient and positive cash flow life. In 2017, he started a consulting business, Hack My Solar to help others identify and implement ways to increase their personal energy independence. So, well, without uh, further ado, I'll introduce Sean. My song of the day is just a fun song. I love it. It's uh, Drunken Disorderly by an old DC punk rock band called Black Market Baby. And I just had this. It has nothing to do with Sean, nothing to do with anything. There's no personal meaning or anything. It's just a great song. I had I played it to my kids as we we're driving to school today. And I just, uh, man, I just I said, I'm going to put that on the, uh, the podcast because Black Market Baby in the old days, of DC punk rock, um, just a great band, a party band, a punk band, you know, back when it was fun, it didn't have to be over. I mean, they're probably leftists, but not, I, I mean, I'm sure they were, but not overly political like we see now. And it just, you go there, have a good time, dance a little bit, get knocked around some. And it's just, it was good times. And I wish, uh, you know, I, I don't miss that necessarily, but this is what fun old punk, punk rock was about. I didn't know this. I just learned this the other day, but they did not, uh, uh, write this song is actually an, an older DC punk rock band from the late seventies. And that was before my time called the Shirkers who did the initial version. And I had, I've never heard of them until literally I started looking at the notes on uh, black market baby with drunken disorderly. Now I've known this song for many, many, many years, but uh, I did not know they 
it was a uh, initial of the Shirkers, another DC punk band before even a black market baby uh, made it famous. So hope you enjoy it. We'll see you next time on the Josh Gandler podcast. And don't forget to subscribe. Don't forget to go to heritagewealthplanning.com for my uh, uh, videos, blog posts, and other podcasts as well. And if you go to YouTube, you go to youtube.com, Heritage Wealth Planning. And we'll see you next time on the Josh Gandler podcast. Thanks, guys. So, so folks, uh, I'm talking with Sean Mills right now. And, uh, and Sean, his bio is just fantastic. Uh, he's 100% off-grid. I, I was, uh, and Sean, if I'm putting words in your mouth, just tell me. But uh, uh, in 2012, he purchased an off-grid home and designed and installed his own off-grid solar photo, photovoltaic system uh, where he lives with his wife and two daughters in uh, Middle Tennessee. Uh, and so, Sean, what I do is I, I try to get financial independence in my, my business as a financial planner. I, I truly, truly believe that uh, – uh, well, it's just one of the reasons we have so much depression in the United States is people are so just tied to debt, so tied to the mortgage, so to, tied to a job they hate, and they just can't, you know, do what they want to do because they're not financially independent. And unfortunately, some, a lot of that has to do with the bills they got to pay, utility bills and all that too. So um, right. that's why I want to wake up to you. And, and you know, we, I, obviously you and I are both part of the Survival Podcast um, podcast group there on Facebook and whatnot. So. So if you don't mind, just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, and, and, uh, and we'll start from there. If you don't mind, just an introduction. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I kind of came into, uh, you know, getting involved with energy generation through my main job, which is uh, being in sales for an industrial construction company. So I've been in and around power generation yeah. uh, since the year 2000, and um, really around the, the financial uh, collapse in 2008, I started thinking, you know, maybe we should be focusing a little bit more on, on our, our own personal self-sufficiency. So, um, like you said, 2012, we decided to, uh, to go fully off-grid. That wasn't our plan initially. Uh, we just happened to, to find a place, and um, we really liked it, and it was already off the grid. Now, one of the interesting things about that is we were able to get that property because it was already off the grid. It was a vacation home for, for uh, another couple. Yeah. For about fifty to $70,000 less than comparable square foot and acreage in the area uh, that we were in. And so you mentioned it. When you don't have a monthly utility bill, you have a low mortgage payment because right. you're able to get a property that you love for so much less than what you would have paid otherwise. And and we have enough property to provide some of our own food. Um, you know, it leads us to the place where we are now. We're, we're completely debt-free, uh, except for the mortgage. And yeah. our mortgage will be paid off within the next 24 months. So, oh. you know, we went from buying a house to we're going to have no mortgage payment in eight years. Now, was the house that underpriced because it was off-grid? Yes, yeah, and we, we looked at we looked at comps in the area, and when the appraisal came back, we were we were kind of blown away, um, and actually talked to the to the uh, the bank, and they said, well, it's off grid, you know, it's it, most people aren't going to buy that. Um, as a matter of fact, we only found one company that would even insure it. Um, so yeah, it, it was completely because the property was off grid, and the folks that lived there. You know they were they were using it as a vacation home and they were just running right. it off a generator when when they were there. I don't understand why. Like, why would a 
how come no one would want to insure it? I, I mean, what just because it's off grid, what's the problem with? I don't. That doesn't make any sense to me. I don't get it. You know what? If I if I if I could explain to you the thought process of an insurance underwriter, I'd be a very rich man. Okay. (laughs) You know, it's probably just one of those rules that they have. Now I can tell you, in order to get insurance, we had to have a uh, propane uh, space heater, and now we heat with wood most of the the winter. Um, every now and again, we try out kerosene. Just you know, if we've got a day where it's just, just that we want to take the chill off, we may run, run a kerosene heater for a little while. But we had to actually install a 30,000 BTU propane um, space heater just to get to, to to meet the insurance requirements. That, ah, so this is just 2012. It's not like it's in 1998 before. You know, green energy and stuff took off. I mean, this is just a few years back. It's yep. amazing. Yep. Is, is the um, how about the bank when they gave you the mortgage? I mean, I guess were they concerned too that hey, I mean, with, with a lot of banks I know it's soft grid, we don't want to touch with the ten foot pole. Were they a little yeah, bit more easy so to deal with? Actually, no. Um, our, the bank that we were banking with at the time uh, wouldn't touch it. Um, most of your large uh, companies wouldn't. We actually talked to the owner and said, hey, you know, what are you guys right. doing? And they, they gave us the name of uh, the mortgage officer at the local um, bank, and we went and talked to him. He said, yeah, we already hold the mortgage on it. We have no problem with it. Now, of course, it was a conventional mortgage. You know, we could not get uh, – it would not <laughs> meet an, an FHA inspection. But, um, again, when you're getting a house for, you know, call it $50,000 yeah. less than – a comp in the, in the same area coming up with twenty percent down payment is a, a bit easier. So, so how about the property taxes? So, and this, I mean, I hate to keep going off this tangent, and my mic is behind here. Is, am I still coming through okay by chance? Yeah, you're fine. Okay. Uh, uh, if I, yeah. If I so, do, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, no problem. Uh, you know, we live in, in Tennessee, which is a place that doesn't have very high property taxes to begin with. Right. right. And um, uh, our annual property taxes are less than five hundred dollars. Oh man! All right. So, from a self-sufficiency perspective and a financial independence, I mean, you have—I mean, a mortgage that was fifty thousand, seventy thousand discount from what the comparables were. You don't have any utility bills. You're going to have property taxes of five hundred bucks a year. I mean, just—I can't think of anything more. More self-sufficient and independent than that, and I mean, you're not living in a trailer. I mean, what is a regular house? You know, I don't know what's the square. Oh place. yeah, no, it's a, it's a, um, it's a just under 1,600 square foot, uh, three bedroom house. Um, it's timber frame, and uh, you know, sits on a on a concrete foundation. The inspector that we had, we actually had to pay an inspector mileage to come out because we wanted to get a, you know, a, a guy from one of the big cities. Um, to come out and inspect it, so we got a guy to come over from Nashville, which we're about yeah. an hour from Nashville. And, are you south um, of Nashville, uh, Sean, or you know, just general where you are, general location? Yeah, we're about an hour west of, of Nashville, okay. right near the Tennessee River. Uh, so if you look okay. at a map, uh, you kind of have the Middle Tennessee and West Tennessee Grand Divisions are delineated by the Tennessee River, and we're right there. Okay, but. Uh, but yeah, the, on the inspection report that came back, the guy said it's one of the most well-built houses he's ever inspected. 
Um, it was actually uh, some uh, Mennonites from the next county over that came over and, and built the place. I've got eight-inch thick insulated uh-huh. walls with a value of about R30, uh, which goes a long way to conserving, you know, wood in the uh, yeah. in the winter. But yes, it's a very well-built house uh, that'll probably outlive me. <laughs> where um where did you move? Now you were in Atlanta before that, or you're still up in the Nashville area working uh, for your for your company and, and said, hey. Um, you know, we'd like to do this. I mean, how, how did, you know, what's the, uh, the impetus? I, mean, I know you said the financial crisis, all that, but how'd you end up on this property itself? So I was working for a company that I started with in Atlanta. Uh, in 2003, they gave me an opportunity to, to go up to Nashville and uh, move into sales. And by 2010, I was actually running our offices in Nashville and Memphis. Okay. So this this place was kind of in between. It was pretty close to Nashville still, uh, but far enough out to where I didn't have to worry about the uh, the big city, you know, okay. property taxes and property values. But yeah, that's that's kind of where we ended up where we were. Is I had an office in Memphis and an office in Nashville. Does your um was your wife cool with you know moving out to the uh, you know the country with an off grid place and all that, or was that kind of what's you know, her story? Yeah. The location was fine. We're, we're three miles from the Tennessee River. You know, we can put a boat in the water and, and be in Kentucky Lake in, in about an hour yeah. or Pickwick Lake in about an hour and some of the best fishing water uh, in the southeastern U.S. Um, and she kind of, she grew up in Atlanta with me. That's where we met. But her okay. um, grandparents uh, had a place up in Dahlonega that, where she'd spend her yeah. summers. And so she didn't, she wasn't concerned with where she was a slightly apprehensive about the off-grid thing. Um, yeah. It didn't help that 2012 was the hottest summer on record for the state of Tennessee. Um, we had more days over average, and the day we actually moved in, the high was 109 degrees in Nashville. <laughs> so that uh, that 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 took that I think that extended the amount of time it took her to to really get on board. But within a couple months, she was fine. If you came and visited our house, as long as it wasn't in the dead of, of summer where we use right. window units to only cool the rooms that we're going to be in, we don't cool the whole house. Right, right. Um, outside of that time of year, you wouldn't tell, be able to tell the difference. We've got a 81-inch uh, projection screen in our living room with Bose surround sound that we sit and watch movies to. Um, you know, we, we it, the place is lit up, right? There's lights in every room. You know, my kids have computers and tablets and stuff like that. I've got an office upstairs. Um, you wouldn't really know that you were in an off-grid place. And uh, like I said, unless you came in the middle of, of sure. summer, uh, and that's because the living room is probably going to be pretty hot because we don't, you know, cool the big living room when we're not going to be in there. We cool the bedrooms. Um, so, yeah, she was a little apprehensive at first, but... Um, you know, I don't think she would. I don't think she would indulge if I said, "Hey, you wanted to move back. You want to move back to Nashville and get a place where we've got a a a monthly power bill right. and gas bill and all that stuff." <laughs> so you have no electricity. I mean, do you still have natural gas that comes in, or how do you cook and stuff? I mean, what, uh, yeah. I mean, so we use we use propane. Um, okay. We go through about twenty three gallons of propane a month. Okay. Um, and to put that in perspective. You know, most propane um, uh, tanks, the big ones that people have at their house, are around 500 gallons. 
So if we were to fill that up, and they don't take a full 500 gallons, but if we were to fill that up, we could go four years before we need to fill it up again. But so those big propane tanks, you know, like a submarine kind of thing, you know, what I'm talking about. That, that's, yeah. Mm-hmm. That you're, oh, those are those are 500 gallons. I'm sorry. Th- those those are about 500 gallons. Yeah, the capacity is 500, and they when okay. they're full, they actually get about 400 gallons of actual liquid propane in them. Gotcha. Okay. And and you're using 23 a month, 23 gallons a month. So basically, the equivalent of five. You know, normal barbecue propane tanks. You know what I mean? Yes, that's right. That's and so that's how you do and, your and cooking. We, is the, yeah, go ahead. That's how we, we that's how we heat our water. Uh, that's how we cook, and we also have a propane fridge. Uh, so instead of have so we've got a refrigerator that's slightly smaller than your standard uh, home refrigerator and freezer, uh, and that actually runs off of propane, just like in a, okay. like an RV. You'd have the same type of thing. Not the so same size. It's a. It's. I think it's about seven cubic feet. And does it have ice? It makes ice and everything. I know this is sound ignorant, but I mean, it just. It's just regular. Oh fridge, yeah, right. It makes yeah, it well, it's just like a regular fridge with the freezer on top. Yep. And, and so then the question for you would be: Well, we we deal with a couple warm uh, days in the summertime in the living room. Um, or we could go and not have that, but have a you know two hundred fifty, three hundred dollar month utility bill. Well, right. that's pretty obvious. I mean, it just doesn't you know, <laughs> doesn't seem like a, a big trade off for a couple of hot days of summer. And in right. the winter time, you're using uh, like a wood stove, or how, how do you heat it again? Yeah, yeah. So we have a wood burning stove uh, that's okay. in our living room, and it's it's surrounded with uh, river ro- river rock, both on the walls and the floor. Um, okay. So that you know, not only does it heat the room, but the radiant heat heats up that rock, that thermal mass, and then over the course of of the night, when we're not up feeding the fire, that heat radiates back into the house. Uh, The house is two two stories, um, which helps, because instead of trying to heat a uh, 1,600-square-foot footprint, it's about an 800-square-foot footprint, and, of course, heat heat rises. So if we really get that thing cooking, even when it's 20 degrees outside, Sometimes we've got to crack a window upstairs because it gets too hot. So now you're using uh, photovoltaic for your electricity, but you're also using solar thermal for the heating. Is that uh, you know, to explain, if you don't mind, a little bit of the two differences? Because I think it's uh, it's pretty interesting how those two things kind of play together. It sounds like you're doing just that. Absolutely. So the way the house is designed, we have a full, uh, you know, essentially 180 degrees facing due south um, is where the front of the house. And so we get a lot of passive heat gain um, in the winter. Our porch uh, on the front of the house extends the full width. Um, And so that also helps to reflect um, solar energy that would normally go to the ground back up into the face of the house. Um, You know, plenty of windows on that side of the house. We keep those uh, windows open during the day in the winter so that we're getting – heat gain in through into the house. And we also have uh, pretty thick um, curtains that go down to cover those windows so that heat isn't lost back through the windows um, o- overnight. We also use um, a solar water heater. Uh, right now it's in what I would call beta test. Um, okay. But right now 
we're getting water uh, that goes in at about 50 degrees, constant flow. It comes out at about 90 degrees. And so when you think about that from the standpoint of if I take that 90-degree water and then run that into my propane water heater, well, you know, going from 90 to 120 takes a lot less BTUs than going yeah. from 50 to 120. Yeah. And so uh, once I get a couple of the bugs worked out with that, we use that for, you know, it's not hooked up to the house right now, but I can hook a hose to it and create hot water for a bunch of different per- per- uh, reasons, you know, washing the dogs and stuff like that outside. Uh, but once that is is fully functional, we're actually going to tie that into um, the solar system, or rather the the system that heats the water in the house. In, in I, I say that to say this. When we do that, all of the components that I used to build that, all the plumbing that has to be done to tie that in, that all gets the same 30% tax credit as the photovoltaic. A lot of people don't know that. They know that okay, if I if I put a bunch of roof-mounted solar on my house, right, I get a thirty percent tax credit. But solar thermal does the exact same thing. Really? Yeah, I didn't know that. You get a, so you get a thirty percent tax credit not just on PV but on solar thermal as well. Even the plumbing right. and the, all the installation that goes to plumbing. Absolutely. That's interesting. How about? Uh, like like a heat pump kind of thing. It was that design, you know, pulling. Uh, I forgot. It's kind of like a solar thermal. You know what I'm saying? Where you're pulling. Uh, there's a terminology I'm thinking, John. Um, you're pulling the heat from the ground, you know, from the ground and, oh, geothermal. and bring it up. Geothermal. That's what I'm talking about. Is that? Yeah. Uh, any any thoughts on that, or or any usage of that, or does that even get a third percent tax credit? I mean, any thoughts we, on geothermal? It it does get the thirty percent tax credit. Um, in the area that I'm in. It's not very cost effective because we're we're in a kind of a very rocky uh, area. Yeah. So to get down okay. to uh, you know to get down deep enough to put a system like that in our area doesn't make a whole lot of sense. If if you were in an area, and the other thing about uh, geothermal is it works better in areas where you're doing more heating than you are cooling. So yeah. if you're in you know northern Ohio or Pennsylvania right. where you've got really deep soil. And you do use heat a lot over the course of the year. That's where that geothermal payback ah, really okay. makes a lot of that's sense. I know a guy in um, I'm trying to remember the, the name of the town. Um, it's, in, it's in northern Indiana, and Valparaiso. I knew I was thinking college basketball. That was what I was. So Valparaiso, <laughs> Indiana. Right. And he put a system in that paid for itself in three years. Uh, a geothermal. Yep. How does he cool? I mean, I, obviously, Indiana gets it can get kind of hot in the summertime. How, how does it? I get the heating part. How does it? Uh, yeah. It wor- it works both ways. So oh. it, let's say uh, let's say I'm taking um, air in my house. Let's say I turn my my thermostat so that you know my AC really kicks on. Um, you know, an hour before I get home from work, right? Yeah. So let's say the air ambient temperature of the air in the house is let's call it 80 degrees. And I want to get it down to 70 degrees. Well, if I've got a heat exchanger that's got 50 degree air in there, it's not gonna it's not gonna bring it all the way down, but it's gonna do some of the work to take that air and yeah. pre-cool it before it actually goes through the compression cycle that cools it and puts it back into the house at about 60 degrees to get it down to 70. Oh man, that's pretty cool. And 
I actually talked to a guy um, in New Hampshire, and he was a, he actually ran a geothermal business, and, and he was telling me, I'm just amazed, like, in that, there you go, because he said it's the same thing you just did. It helps a lot with the heating. But he was telling me he was using it for, like, some visit, like uh, like the Sheraton Hotel in Portsmouth or something. I can't remember the exact. Oh, But, you know, they said, it, no, it was, it was fantastic. And, you know, this is just some crusty old guy. You know what I mean? He's not, he's not nothing, you know, not one of these Silicon Valley tycoons, just some guy. And he said, look, this is a technology that is, anyway, it's just it's interesting how all this, Stuff varies from region to region, but I, I was actually enthralled by that. I was like, man, how does you know? I, I get the heat pumping mechanism, but I it was just it was interesting, and uh, so I didn't realize it's so dependent though on your on your where you know your geology, I guess whatever the word is. I'm looking right. for. That's pretty interesting too. But in Tennessee and I guess in Georgia and stuff like that, because all the clay would uh, you know like solar thermal uh, would be preferable potentially than geothermal or or, or wood. I mean. Like my see, I'm from Maine, Sean, and my and I just remember um, my mom couldn't pay the heating bills. We'd have to. Uh, it's just the house is free, so I'm all I've always been worried about freezing the death. <laughs> I told that right. house paranoid, but I remember going to the house in Maine because I lived on an island, and my parents were hippies, and it just we did a lot of composting and chicken and all that. But I just remember uh, going to the house after school, and just it'd be colder inside the house and outside the house, even in wintertime in Maine. It just be horrible, and I and I said, man, I if I whatever I have to do, I, we gotta make sure we stay warm. So <laughs> lack of heating well, has always been a concern to me, man. <laughs> and and I'm I'm the guy that says I don't want one way to do anything, right? I want right, multiple right, ways. Right. So you know, I could I could give you plans for you to build, and, and a lot of this is space dependent too. But I could give you plans to build a solar thermal air collector. All right, it's a four by eight unit, and it will with with a little uh, USB powered fan on it. It'll throw out about four thousand BTUs per hour while this while it's getting sun. Okay, and to put that into perspective, that's that's the same amount of heat that about a twelve hundred and fifty watt electric baseboard heater puts out, and it's the same wow. amount of heat that you get out of about um, uh, you know the the I think they're called Mister Buddy. Heater, oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. the one pound. You know, you go hunting, yeah. maybe you throw it in your blind so your feet don't get cold. That thing on low puts out about four thousand BTUs, also. And so you've got a lot of places up in the northeast that are throwing these things on the side of their house. You know, just the whole side of the house is is passive uh, solar yeah. thermal. It pumps the the hot. You know, the intake is at the bottom. It takes air right out of the house, passes it through this. Uh, four by eight uh, box and then pumps it back into the house, you know, with an additional 4,000 BTUs worth of heating energy. And so I, we've, we've got a couple of those that we're prototyping for our place, but we've got the wood heat. We've got yeah. kerosene backup. We've got the propane yeah. backup that's never been turned on since we put it into the house. Um <laughs> And, and you know what? We've got we've got a lot of, of, of blankets, and we've got three dogs too. So worst yeah. case scenario, we it would just be a three dog night. <laughs> <laughs> Literally a three dog night. Yeah, and, and yeah. again, the idea that you're going to go through three of those backup resources. I mean, yes, it could happen. I mean, you know, got to be prepared. But at the end of the day, I mean, you've been there for six years, and you know, last couple of winters are pretty doggone cold. So it sounds like it hasn't happened yet, and the likelihood of it happening is, is quite small. That doesn't mean you don't prepare for it, but I mean, you're not right. living in in northern Maine, that's for sure. 
how did you know, well, how did you learn all this stuff, Sean? I mean, so you're working for a company. You're obviously your know, power generation. You know your experience with that. But how did you kind of not say the vault, not the vault, this word like detour? I guess I'm not sure the word I'm looking for. Um, pick up this extra knowledge of this because it's not just you know that you just don't happen overnight. I mean, you have to have some learning capacity. And you know what was how did you start doing that? And and uh, I mean what just I'm interested in you know honestly how you came just, to be. Just, it's it's something that has always interested me, um, yeah. and and I kind of nerded out on it when we decided to go off grid. I really got deep into trying to understand what the different options were, what the what the costs were, you know, what kind of payback I would be looking at, you know, would it be something that I should hybridize between multiple systems? Um, so that's really where it came from is. Uh, you know, just just a passion, you know, for learning uh, and, and learning about things that I'm interested in. And I, I became so interested in alternative energy yeah. when when we kind of made the decision, hey, you know what? Because when we started looking for a house, we weren't looking for an off-grid house. We were looking for right. a house that we could take partially off-grid at some point in the indefinable future. But when we found a place, I was like, oh, hey, I've got all this stuff that I've been nerding out on for the last four years, and, and now I can start to put some of it into practice. So the Internet, you know, these days, if oh, you want to man. learn about yeah. something, you just you, if, if you can't use the Internet to learn pretty much anything you want to, then, then you've got a, a Google Foo problem. Yeah, that's uh, – that, YouTube is <laughs> – that's kind of um, – that's interesting. And, and then are you in a neighborhood? I mean, like, you know, a typical subdivision or something like that? Are you – I mean, are no. your neighbors off-grid or – uh, no, no, I'm actually the only off-grid uh, guy in, in my immediate area. There are a couple other people in, in the county, um, and we're on 10 acres, and I've got oh, um, a neighbor on one side of me that's got about 50 acres, and on the other side I've got three neighbors with, you know, anywhere from three to 10 acres. So lots of, you know, not a subdivision, but it's still a pretty tight-knit community, even though we all have, you know, decent-sized parcels of the land. And you say you're growing, you're, you're doing some uh, gardening and a little bit more than gardening. What are you doing for self-sufficient on the food on the food front? Yeah, so we are doing gardening. Um, we have uh, we've got some meat uh, chickens and and uh, quail, and some egg chickens, and we actually have some uh, ducks and turkeys arriving this weekend. Um, oh, we wow, we had okay. uh, we had goats for a little while. Uh, they really became more pets than productive animals, so <laughs> we got rid of them. And um, I'd like to do some some Dexter cattle at some point in the future. Um, my you know my day job right now as a sales guy, I do a lot of traveling. So yeah, um, say, my how wife. Do you, how do you manage all this stuff? Yeah, right. Well, I, I I got a wife that really does a great job, and and we've got two kids that um, really enjoy it too. So. You know, couldn't couldn't do any of this stuff without those guys being on board. But um, so so I'm I'm very uh, cautious about adding big and yeah. new endeavors because the reality is is that um, anything big like that that I add, I, I'm I can only be there about half the time to manage it. So uh, so that's that's future state, but it's something right. that uh, I'm definitely uh, interested in, in learning more about in the meantime. Well, just, uh, I mean, just doing a vegetable garden is hard enough. I mean, if you're on the road, yeah. it'd be hard to do all these other things, too. I, I mean, I'm impressed that your wife is uh, you know, doing the chickens, all that stuff. And then you're, you got, you're, you have two daughters, right? That's right, yep. 
adapt with their ages? They are 11 and about to be 13. All right, so they don't mind going out there and getting their hands dirty and you know doing all that grunt work that goes with uh, you know raising food. No, they don't. You know, and I think part of that has to do with the fact that you know they both. You know, we we moved out here even before we moved out here. We used to keep a garden. Um, okay. You know, so at least okay. we were doing that even when we were living in in, in a subdivision. And um, you know, they've been out. I think the girls were. Uh, around five and seven when we first moved out here. So, um, you know, they, that's, it's what they know and, and they like the chickens and the quail. And yeah. I, w- I wouldn't say they like gardening, but they like eating <laughs> stuff from the garden. So it's a trade off. So, but we, uh, we went to our local farmer's market the other day. It's like, I have, I have four kids. My two oldest are girls and, you know, teenage girls are just lots of fun, but, uh, I love them to death, but man alive. Teenage <laughs> girls. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, we got some strawberries and, uh, it's just, I tell you, man, the difference is like both my, my daughter's like, oh, it's like heavenly. And, uh, I mean, it's just fresh picked strawberries not being oh, yeah. transported. Uh, it's just, it's, you came in, it's not even the same. I mean, it, you know that, and I know that, but, and I was saying, this is why I'm trying to grow stuff because when it comes off, well, you can pick it and put it in your mouth direct from the vine. It's just 10,000 million oh, times yeah. tastier. And never mind, it's free. And never mind who grew it, but just oh, the taste is to die for. Absolutely, my my younger daughter. When we pick green beans, yeah, we have oh. to have an extra. She'll eat half of what she picks before <laughs> we even get back to the house. It'll be one in her mouth and one in the basket the whole yep. time. Oh man! And you're right. That's perfect. You go to the grocery store, even a Whole Foods. Yep. You're typically eating something that was picked between five yep. and seven days ago. Exactly, and I tell you. And it tastes like that. I mean, that's just a fact. It, yeah. it, and that's yeah. the only way that can get it to you. Which is another one of my things that, you know, kind of I like the idea of farmer's markets and, and local living, localized living, just because, it, you know, you you know, if you get some, uh, I don't know, you know, some fruit from California, I mean, it's got to be trucked. It's got to be hauled. It's got to be picked from the – I mean, it's just not nearly as going to be fresh as we can get from mm-hmm. your local guy. And it's, uh, it's worth it, even if it's a price a little bit higher. Because it tastes so much better. Now, I, ideally, right. you can do it yourself. It's even the best because you don't have to pay for it other than the, the labor that goes in it. But, man, oh. I used to, uh, when I was a kid and growing up in Maine, I used to pick uh, strawberries. You know, get 25 cents a quart. And, man, I, it was crazy. Go <laughs> and pick one, eat one, pick one, eat one. It was just a local guy. And, you know, he used to bring all these, you know, immigrant laborers. And then the local kids would go there just for part-time work. And he was just doing it as a community service with nothing else. But, I mean, it was just, you'd just go there and it'd be, it'd be like heaven. You'd, you'd strawberry pick one. You'd, and, you know, you never make that much <laughs> right. money because you ate half the freaking thing. But at the end of the day, you know, he, he had so many strawberries, this guy, that there would half of them would go to waste anyway. But it was, oh, man, I tell you. What, what do you grow for anything? Jump out of you for vegetables you're, you're working on? Anything? You grow corn or carrots you know, and everything? We, do, we, don't, we don't grow corn. Um, lots of leafy greens. Yeah, okay. Um, there's something to be said about walking out off your back porch and picking a salad from right there and oh, then taking man, it inside and, and eating yeah. it. Um, you know, tomatoes, cucumbers, pretty much any kind of squash you can think of, both summer and winter. Uh, yeah. We've had mixed reviews on melons. We've tried, you know, watermelons and cantaloupe, and some years they're great, and, and other years they're horrible. So, um, but um, you know, I would say that the me personally, I'm a huge fan of, of the 
the old uh, zucchini squash and and the yellow squash either on the grill or sauteed or like I, growing up i remember my grandmother used to sit me down and give me cut up raw yellow squash and a little bit of ranch dressing and i would just sit there and hammer that we we grow a lot of that a lot of squash <sighs> dump some in olive oil and rosemary and some oh man put on the go oh jeez i got mean, it it's so good, and your kids will eat it, and they don't even know they're eating something healthy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. So what? Uh, so the future. So I mean, you got 24 months yet to pay off your mortgage, and tell us a little bit about you know your business, your consulting business. Is that, that obviously if your boss is listening? I'm not trying to get you in trouble, but does the future <laughs> portend to say at some point you're going to run this business full time? So go a little bit to your consulting business, if you don't mind, uh, Sean, about hack, hack my solar. Sure, sure, yeah. So I started that up last year, and, and oh, okay. really the goal is to help other people, you know, gain personal energy independence. You know, we hear sometimes in the news they're talking about, you know, energy independence, and, and last yeah. year the U.S. became a net exporter of energy for the first time since the 70s. But, you know, we we focus more on the on the personal energy independence. Um, and I'll give you some, some numbers on that. A, re- a system that will retail for between forty and sixty thousand dollars, depending on where you are in the country. Yeah, you can buy the parts for that for less than ten thousand dollars. Sixty-seven percent of a retail system's cost is soft cost based on the installer company. So it's you know cost for advertising, it's right. overhead and profit, it's labor, um, and so you know. What what we want to do is we want to talk to people who have uh, the gumption and the desire to do this, and maybe it's not an off grid system, maybe it's an on grid system, um, right. but don't but don't want to pay an extra forty thousand dollars to have a, a pro come in um, and, and do it. The uh, I mean, so when I put my system in, which is just under twenty five hundred watts or two and a half kilowatts. Um, I spent eight thousand dollars on the components. I could, I could put an identical system in, and that was in 2012. I could put an identical system in right now for less than six thousand dollars. And so, when I think about the fact that I've had this system in place for, uh, let's see, it'll be um, six years and one month. Right. Right. Um, right now we're at six years and one month. And uh, you know, my the cost for me putting that in was was eight thousand dollars. So, you know, I I would say I prepaid for about five years worth of electricity bills, and now I'm getting it for free. Oh, that exactly. I mean, that's exactly right. Yeah. And within the next uh, probably, I would I might do it this year. It just depends. Within the next call it eighteen months, I need to do a battery switch out. Uh, so I need to take my my batteries and in any solar system. Battery storage is always the issue. You know, yeah. the most cost-effective storage method right now is lead acid, and that technology was invented in 1859 and hasn't been improved on since 1881. So, so repeat that again, Sean. That that seems so absurd. The most cost-effective co- cost way to store electricity is a lead acid yeah. battery, which is the same right. kind of battery you have in your car. Um, it's the same kind of battery that you that's in the golf carts when you go to the, go out to the golf course. Uh, it's lead acid. The only difference is is that a deep cycle lead acid battery uh, has thicker plates, so okay. it doesn't give as much immediate 
uh, energy as a as a car battery would, but it allows right. you to draw on it longer. Um, but that technology was invented in 1859 and has not been improved on since 1881. And that's that's right now. That's now lithium ion is catching up. Um, you know, when you think about the stuff that uh, uh, Elon Musk is doing with the gigafactories, um, which there, I think there's one in Buffalo and the other one's in Nevada, those economies of scale on lithium-ion technology are, are starting to drive that technology towards cost parity with lead acid, but it's not there yet. And that's why I'm saying I will have to change out my, mm-hmm. my lead acid batteries, in my opinion, I think one more time. Because the next time that those batteries start to wear out, the next technology is going to be in place, and there'll probably be uh, lithium-ion. And when I go to lithium-ion, I probably won't ever have to change my batteries out again. So you're thinking you're, it'll be another you'll switch out your batteries, and they last six to eight years or so, and then say by 2025, just you know, obviously we're just speculating. The lithium ions will be the technology that replaces lead acid batteries, which uh, which won't be which will be a whole lot more durable and store mm-hmm. more energy. Do you think? Or yeah. So the interesting thing about lead acid batteries is you can really only get to use half the energy that they store. Um, so you know, let's just say for in, in for purposes of of conversation, you can get a hundred amp hours out of yeah. a lead acid battery. Okay. Well, in order to get 100 amp hours out of the lead acid battery, that battery has to be rated for 200 amp hours, and it has to do with with it has to do with a bunch of science. I won't get into it right now. Right. The big difference between lead acid and lithium ion is that lithium ion will give you about 100 percent of what it's of what it can right. down to about 93 percent. All right, so you can draw it down 93 percent. That's what we call depth of discharge. Yeah. And still get all the power. That's why all these, you know, uh, Ryobi and Hilti and Rigid and all these companies with these awesome new power tools that are coming out that are based on the lithium-ion battery technology. That's yeah. why if you're using a if you're using a lithium-ion powered drill, you get a, just about a hundred percent of the power until it stops completely. If you were using a, a lead acid equivalent. It would draw great at the very beginning, and then it would get weaker and weaker and weaker. And when you got down to about 50% of that battery's capacity, essentially it wouldn't work anymore. And so when when I'm talking about cost parity, I'm talking about cost parity on a per amp hour basis. Uh, And and we're going – like you you threw out 2025. I think we'll get there a lot faster. I just know that my current batteries won't make it that long. (laughs) So I'm going to have to change out. The, the six-year-old batteries are going to have to get changed out before we're there, but you know I could see us getting there within the next three years. So will that revolutionize uh, energy storage with these new batteries? I mean, I, I know everybody's going to talk about that, but you think this that close? I, and I don't know. I'm, I'm ignorant on that. I mean, I followed enough to sure to be dangerous. Uh, <laughs> I can tell you, if you talk to um, energy company executives. Um, yeah. which you're in Atlanta, so you've got Georgia Power, uh, which right. is a southern company. And, and yep. I've done work with, with – I've, I've gone on uh, uh, clay shoots with southern company guys and talked to them about this stuff. They will never build another what's called a peaking unit again. Okay? When I was actually in the field in the early 2000s, I did a lot of work building peaking units. And what a peaking unit is, 
is let's say on the hottest day of the year when everyone's got their air conditioning up and going and all that electricity is getting pulled off the grid, all yeah. of your baseload components like your coal-fired power plants, your nuclear power plants, stuff like that, all of that electricity is being used, and they need more to meet that peak demand, so they turn yeah. on a peaking, a peaking plant. And so that plant generates the extra, extra electricity needed to meet the demand for that period of time. The problem is, is that's the most expensive yeah, electricity right. that you can make because you've got to be ready to generate 24/7, 365, even though the plant may only run 20 days a year. So, battery technology is that is at a place right now where instead of building peaking plants, they are building battery storage facilities where, when they have extra uh, electricity on the grid, they put it in the batteries. And when they get to that peaking need, they pull it from the batteries. That so it's to already because they stored it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's already revolutionized the industry in that it's eliminated a whole section of the power generation market. So you know, right now the only thing that can keep up with, and we're talking about cost of generation. You know, I'm not talking about cost of storage, but actually cost of generating the electricity. The only thing that can keep up with wind and solar right now is combined cycle. And it's, it's close. Um, and one of those costs are going up as natural gas prices rise and we, as we start exporting more of it. And, and the supply is not so much more than the demand. So I, every time one of these new natural gas combined cycle plants comes online and every time they complete a new exporting facility, you know, more of that more of that supply is getting sucked up, and as that happens, the cost of natural gas is going to go up, whereas the cost of solar and wind is going down. And so, um, the uh, let's see, Lazard, which is a and an, they're a portfolio manager, uh, an investment advisor company that does a lot of does I think it's an annual report on what's called levelized cost of energy, which mm-hmm. is the total cost of a plant over its lifetime and the total amount of uh, energy that it will generate over its lifetime, just those two numbers, yeah, right, right. Um, has solar and wind as the cheapest, as of this year, solar and wind are the cheapest power plants that you can build at utility scale. So that's why you've got, I mean, you know, every major uh, utility owner in the United States is putting in solar and wind, every single one. And these are guys, a lot of these guys, a lot of these executives came up in the industry where it was 80% coal, you right, know, and exactly. now they're at the oh, right, where, right. where, where <laughs> they, these guys are making yeah. the decision because of cost, not because of environmental reasons, not right. because of, you know, the market isn't demanding solar electricity yet, but they're looking at it and saying, that's the cheapest way to go. And once no, again, and these are, yeah. Itself. These aren't greenies from uh, Al Gore's campaign. I mean, these are industrial yeah. veterans from these the coal power These are crusty old coal guys, absolutely. <laughs> right, exactly. And they're the ones that are making these decisions because of the economics. So just going back to the peak, um, again, that means they don't need to generate it, you know, have it on, you know, for 20 days or whatever, you know, 220 days out of 365 days just in case so they got to suddenly turn on. Now they just flip on the batteries because they've already generated the power to meet the peak demand for that hot day on the, in the summertime. You see what I'm saying? I mean, right. just from a, a layperson's perspective, do you want me to start from scratch to generate the electricity for you, or do you want me to just flip on the switch because it's already sitting there in the battery? 
Yep. Yeah, the biggest issue with, with utility-scale solar and um, wind right now is curtailment. They actually have to turn down yeah. the amount of electricity that's going onto the grid from that stuff because when is it being generated? Well, solar is yeah. being generated during the middle of the day. Electric right, right. Uh, wind's being generated at the middle of the night primarily. Yeah. Well, when are people at home using their electronics and watching TV in the right. evenings and in the mornings? So <laughs> right now you've got a disparity of when this, yeah. when these new uh, generation uh, uh, megawatts are hitting the grid and when the customers want them. So when the when the battery technology catches up to where they can take that instead of curtailing it, yeah. they can take it and store it and then. Put it, and that's you know you hear people talking about the electric cars, you know you'll be able to plug your electric car in while you're at work and then power your house from it when you get home, you know that's that's why they're tr- thinking of those kind of solutions is to try to match generation of the cheap electricity with right. the actual need. It's it's just again it's all batteries. I mean if you get the batteries, it's, the batteries will change everything. I mean, that's yep. just what it comes down to. Let me ask you a question, and I won't take up too much more of your time. But uh, so, so you know, let's say I'm running 50 kilowatt hours a day in my house here in Georgia. You know what I'm saying? I mean, what, so for your PV, and again, that's my electricity just for folks. I'm not, you know, I use natural gas for heat, and then in the summertime I heat. Well, hell, I do a lot of <laughs> grilling outside even in the wintertime. But, like, today right. it's hot, and so I like to grill outside so I don't have all the excess heat going in my house. So on your PV, um, like what size, Sean? Like, are you have it sitting on your rooftops? You have it sitting on, you know, on the outside, you know, in a in part of your acreage or something? Just, I mean, until the batteries are there, you still got size limitations. So just tell me a little bit about the size that it takes to to get you using, I don't know, how many you know kilowatt hours you use in electricity. If that makes any sense, I'm asking. So, yeah, and that's actually a great question, and, and that's that that is a, a, a definite limitation. Is can I put these on the ground, or do I need right. to put them on the roof? If I if I want to put them on the roof, typically only half of my roof is going to be feasible for doing that, right? Because uh, the other side is not going to get enough sun, right? And right. and then I've got a limited amount of roof space. Um, that that is being helped some by the fact that they're coming up with more efficient. Um, solar panels. So you, you take a solar panel that's about uh, 30 inches by about 70 inches, and that panel five years ago, you were pushing it to get it to generate 275 watts, uh, and now that exact same footprint you can get 350 watts out of. Mm-hmm. And and you can you can get a little bit higher than that, but but you really have to start paying for it. So right, right, right now, no, right, right. in in the industry. Right now, a 275-watt panel is the sweet spot. You can get those for about $0.60 cents a watt, okay? Okay. So where you, you're in Atlanta, so you, you average four and a half sun hours per day. And what, what I mean by that is over the time period of day where the sun is shining, you get right. the equivalent of four and a half hours worth of noonday sun, all right? And, and that's what when you when you when you look at a panel that says it's rated for 275 watts, that's in perfect conditions, right? You need to right. derate that a little bit to get. And I you normally use 80 percent. I use 80 okay. percent of the name plate capacity, and typically that's these guys do a great job. I mean, most of these panels you get a 25 year guaranteed 
90% warranty with. Okay, so if I'm going to put a 25-year warranty on something, I better be building it the right way. Right. And so there, you know, we don't have any any of these panels that have been up for 50 years, but I'm guessing they probably generate a lot of electricity at 50 years if the manufacturer is going to guarantee them up to 25. Um, but so that 275-watt panel, if you derate it to you know 80% of its nameplate capacity and figure on four and a half hours of sun a day. It's going to give you just under a kilowatt of electricity. Yeah, right. Okay, I got you. So, when you, right. so for for your house, if you're using 50 kilowatt hours a day, you would need about 50 panels to completely replace the electricity that you're using. Okay. And the reality is most people aren't going to have enough roof space to put 50 panels on their roof. That being said... If you're if you're looking at generating all your electricity and you say I've got enough room to generate thirty, right? You'll probably be able to make some lifestyle decisions, like putting your entertainment system on a on a uh, surge protector and turning that off when you're not using it, stuff like uh-huh, that, uh-huh. to 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 make up for the rest of that. You would be surprised when when we lived in Memphis, we we were using about twenty seven kilowatt hours a day, and we're using about nine now. And and that's nope. without really trying. I mean, that's, whoa, whoa, whoa. you're using you know, nine now, Sean, yeah. in your house and with three yep. ladies. Yeah. Holy. Yeah. Well, you think about so the average the average U.S. household yeah. energy consumption, space heating is about twenty five percent of your annual energy bill. Uh-huh. Cooling is about right. another eleven. Water heating is about thirteen. Um, you know, dishwashers, clothes dryers, cooking, stuff like that. Uh, th- those are all minimal compared to the big ones, which is heating, heating your water, heating a space. Um, and, and a big one is entertainment. As a matter of fact, we use more electricity on entertainment than we do for anything else. Um, our space heating and our water heating is not electric. Our space cooling is limited to specific areas that we want to be right. in. And, and so taking those primary uses of electricity out of, you know, the way that a mainstream uh, household would do it drastically drops the use. Yeah, no, that's, uh, well, it's funny just because replace my light bulbs with LEDs and then we got some higher insulation and just talking around the light fixtures and stuff. We've actually mm-hmm. reduced our electricity um, from about 68 kilowatts an hour to, uh, to roughly 50 now. And, you know, I got, again, we have a house of six and there's more that we could do for sure, but, it's just even that simple stuff, man. That's not even mm-hmm. just, and, you know, we do, you know, hell of a lot of my wife, loads of, of uh, laundry, and then on top of that, uh, drying the clothes. Did you have a, do you use outside, um, you know, air dry your clothes, you and your wife, or do you got a, so a, a, we, we have a washer, we have a washer and a dryer, um, that okay. are both electric. We brought them with us, um, and, okay. um, but yeah, I, the vast majority of the time, the clothes either get dried by the sun or yeah. by the heat heat from the wood wood burning stove. Uh, that's that's uh, definitely a, a good way to do it. I mean, it's a pain, but it's the biggest pain is seeing that freaking bill at three hundred bucks, and you're just like, man, where did it? <laughs> you know, it'll yeah. never go away. Um, hey, so just real quick, and then so in the future, you think you'll do your consultant gig full time? I mean, is that uh, tell us where we can find so. I'm going to try to. I want to get you out of here in seven minutes, so I don't want to take up too much of your time. But just like so, Sean said, hey, you're doing these consulting things. We talked about basically the soft costs, which is a significant expense. 
So what do you do to help people who are interested in a, maybe not going off grid, but just maybe you know being grid tied or just be more energy efficient because they're, they they are also sick of the utility bill and and just from a pure financial planning perspective, they're saying, hey, you know, I, I want to take advantage of savings. That uh, doesn't mean I have to, you know, read by candlelight. Uh, so how can how can people find you and what can you do for them? And just you know, give us the, I hate to say a sales pitch, but, I mean, I think it's fantastic what you're doing. So tell us what, sure. you know, what you're doing. So the easiest way to reach me is, is by email, uh, which is Sean, S-H-A-W-N, at hackmysolar.com. Okay. Uh, we have the website, hackmysolar.com. We have a Facebook page. Um, don't have a huge, you know, I throw some stuff up on the Facebook page every now and again, but that's not really an outreach tool. Um, but it, anyone could reach me through the Facebook page also. And, and absolutely, what, what we will do, we, we can come in and do energy audits. Um, we can sit down with people and say, hey, I've got this, you know, shed out here that, that doesn't have electricity and I'd like to put a couple solar panels on it oh, and maybe okay. a, uh, maybe a solar, a thermal uh, air heater for so I can go out there and do my my woodworking in the winter and and get away from you know the stuff that's going on in the house but I don't want to have to pay right. to trench you know to get electricity out there from the house or I don't want to have to pay to get the permit or I can't get a permit any of that stuff um you know that that those are some some things if if someone's got a hunt camp or a, a vacation cottage or something yeah, right, they're right. wanting to to get electricity into we can do that and and on the off-grid side, there are a lot more permits and requirements, particularly when you actually flip that switch. But what we can do is we can help walk people through that process, sanity check, quotes that they're getting, help them source materials. Um, if you were to go out and buy the materials and then hire a licensed electrician to come in and hook everything up on a, on a T&M basis, you would save a lot, more, more, a lot of money versus going through uh, a solar install company that, like I said, is going to charge you twice as much for them as you're paying for all of the components in the entire system. Do electricians typically know how to do all that stuff, Sean, or what's your, I mean, just your experience with the licensed electricians and their, and their ability to do uh, your solar installations and just... Yeah, you know, my, just... my experience with uh, all the electricians that I've either dealt with or talked to is that a wire is a wire is a wire. Oh, okay. uh, they know how to do the conversions from um, AC to DC, talking about wire sizing to prevent uh, you know, losing uh, electricity to resistance because you, you don't want to skimp on your wire size and lose right. 30% of the electricity you're generating. Um, so everyone that I've ever talked to that's a licensed electrician can do all of that. So you're saying basically you know, subcontract out. You, you would help people with the materials or, you know, at least show them how to buy and stuff, and then they can find, you know, their electrician to wire everything because, like I said, a wire is wire, wire and whatnot, as opposed to just mm -hmm. going straight through, you know, solarselling.com or something like that. That would be a, a much, much yeah, we can, cheaper way. We can okay. design yeah. design mounting systems uh, depending on the requirements in the individual in the, in the specific state. Uh, a lot yeah. of times we can work right alongside the homeowner to actually do all of the installation, run all oh. of the wires, and then you yeah. just pay the electrician to come in and make the connection. Oh, which okay. Can be done so you day. can actually do that, Sean. You can actually put the 
panels on the roof or or on the ground or whatever. Yep. I mean, I mean, oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't know that. Your your, your you mileage mean. may vary based on local laws and homeowners right, associations right. and stuff like that. But if there's no law against it, we can take all of that work and make it much easier, much more streamlined, oh, and fantastic. really drop the cost.